Hello, my name is Justin Raich, and I'm the host of Glowworm, the podcast of the International Churchill Society. In this episode, I speak with Anthony Tucker Jones, the author of the recent book, Churchill, Master and Commander, Winston Churchill at War, 1895-1945. to The book is now out in the United Kingdom and is released on November 23rd in the United States. If you're not already a member of the International Church Society, you can easily join by going to winstonchurchill.org. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy! Hello everyone, my name is Justin Reich and today I am pleased to be joined by Anthony Tucker-Jones, the author of Churchill, Master and Commander, which comes out tomorrow, November 23rd in the United States. And Anthony, how are you doing today? I'm very good, Justin, and uh, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. So Anthony, as you may know, uh, as you certainly know, the name of the podcast is Glowworm, which is uh, named after that that Churchill quote that many people love of, we are all worms and I am a glowworm. So we really like to talk to uh, interesting uh, authors, other people working in the Churchill space, you know, Churchill and his times. So I was really struck by this book upon reading it, um, just how much you, if I can say, just how much you are able to bring to life the complete and and, and almost uh, unable to understand complexities in, in, in differences of personality, if you will, of this incredible man. So if I could first ask you, Anthony, as you know, Churchill's been a hot topic in the past couple of years, and you've written over 50 books, many focusing on military why did you decide to jump in the Churchill ring? Um, yes, good question. I mean, it's, it's a it's a daunting pool to dip your toe into. Um, you, I mean, you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. Over the years, I've written quite a lot of books on the Second World War, many of them dealing with campaigns for 40, 44, 45. So Churchill's kind of been a constant companion in those books. So I sort of knew him reasonably well, but he was always there... With all the other senior leaders, you know, Eisenhower and uh, Roosevelt, Marshall, Patton, Bradley, Montgomery, Dempsey, Orkinlet, Wavell, you know, all those sort of senior commanders and politicians. But he, he was never the focus. Um, so that's sort of what, what's, what drew me to maybe assessing him a bit more. Um, and also, it wasn't until I started reflecting on Churchill, actually, I realised I'd followed in his footsteps quite a bit. So... In a previous career, I, I worked in Whitehall, you know, the, the heart of uh, British government departments. Um, and I worked in something called the Old War Office building um, on the Mall there. And I, of course, I realised actually he'd had offices there when he was the, you know, Minister of Munitions, Secretary of State for War. And, I, and it, at the time, you know, it's like it hadn't really occurred to me. I was sort of following in his footsteps without realising it. And likewise, Old War Office building built in the early 1900s. So was the heart of uh, running the British war effort during the First World War. So Churchill was there as uh, Minister of Munitions during the First World War. And also David Lloyd George was there as well as Minister of Munitions. And of course, 
he's pretty much ranked as probably the second most famous British Prime Minister after Churchill. You know, his contribution to uh, British way of life and politics was quite significant. Um, and also that General Kitchener, again, he'd been in that building. Um, and it's a marvellous old building. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to London or the Whitehall area, but it's a marvellous old building built of Portland stone, like lots of those buildings are. So it's quite distinctive architecture. And then if you come out of the building, directly across the road is the old Admiralty building, where, of course, Churchill served two terms as uh, First Lord of the Admiralty. Um, if, you then, if you then take a left and go on down the mall past the Cenotaph, of course, you're not far from Downing Street. Again, two terms of office as Prime Minister during the Second World War and during the 50s. Um, uh, and also, of course, next to Downing Street, you've got the Cabinet offices. And below that, of course, they built the bunker complex, Cabinet War Rooms, which has since been renamed the, you know, the Churchill War Rooms. Um, so they're there. Uh, and again, and then if you carry on uh, straight on down the Mall, you come to Westminster Palace, Houses of Parliament, where Churchill, of course, served as Prime Minister and as a, as a Member of Parliament, both on the front and the, and the back benches. And then facing Westminster Palace is... Parliament Square, of course, where, where the famous Churchill statue is. So it, it I, I kind of realised I'd actually been quite close to the man, in a sense, over the years, with, with at the time, you know, without sort of realising it. And then I had recent years, a couple of holidays. In fact, one of them was in America, which, again, sparked my interest in perhaps writing a book on Churchill. And, um, I was in Florida on holiday with the family. We took our daughters there on that, you know, that rite of passage, um, you know, to Disney and Universal and all that. Uh, and one day they let, um, the girl said, oh, you know, Dad, it's your time to, to choose somewhere to go. So I chose the Kissimmee Museum of Military History. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been there, but great place. Uh, records, you know, the US military history. So a lovely place. So I was in there and the, I was chatting to the owner, explaining what I did. And he gave me some pamphlets uh, one of which was something like, you know, World War II trails or something. And I, I flicked through these and was interested to see that, um, you know, U-boats had attacked American shipping off the, not only the east coast of Florida, but also the west. They'd got into the Gulf of Mexico. But then the thing that caught my eye was this short piece about uh, RAF war graves in Florida. And I thought, well, that's a bit strange, isn't it? So I, I read closer and it explained, sadly, they died during pilot training in Florida. And I thought, OK, I, yeah, I understand that. And also it said, you know, half a dozen other US states were involved in training the RAF. I thought, OK, fine, I, I understand. But the, the thing that caught my eye was the date, which was the summer of 41. And I thought, well, that's really strange. America hadn't entered the war there. You know, what, what, what on earth was the RAF doing in Florida and Arizona and wherever else it was? Um, and of course, that made me think about Roosevelt's burgeoning relationship with Churchill, that he was, you know, although... America was constrained by the Neutrality Acts, that, that Roosevelt had made his mind up, come what may, that he was going to help Britain, he was going to help Churchill. So that, 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 that sort of set me on that road. And then also a few years ago, I did a, a book on D-Day for the 75th anniversary. And again, with that, um, I covered, obviously, his involvement, you know, with, um, you know, things like him coming up with the idea for the floating harbours and, you know, supporting building specialised armour fighting fields and all that sort of stuff. But the thing that sort of pulled me up when I was doing that was the subsidiary landings in the south of France, which Churchill opposed um, to his, you know, almost to his dying breath. In fact, he went to Eisenhower and threatened to resign, which I was quite surprised about. But he didn't want to dissipate the war effort in Italy, you know, because that was always his, his big thing, supporting the campaign there and getting to Austria and the Balkans. And of course, it then occurred to me that by the summer of 
44, Churchill's influence on the strategic direction of the Second World War was beginning to wane, uh, and quite understandably and quite rightly, because America by then was the senior partner. So that sort of then made me sort of backtrack and think, well, how on earth had Churchill been the right person in the right place for becoming Prime Minister in May 1940? Uh, so that was sort of my, my starting point, and that's what sort of you know, inspired me to write this book, if you like. So, Anthony, I'm so glad you um, brought up that very interesting tidbit of RAF pilots training in Florida over the Gulf of Mexico. And in fact, at our conference, uh, the International Church Studies Conference in London uh, this past October, there was a, a gentleman there, an RAF uh, pilot named Colin Bell, who's well into his 100s, and you may know him. And he was talking about... Um, training over the Gulf of Mexico. And, and that was the first time I had ever heard someone, you know, someone to your, in, 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 in this, in your own story, like totally flabbergasted. I had no idea in 41 that they, that these pilots were over there dropping bombs in, in the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, that's just a funny aside. And, and I'm, I, it was, it was incredible to hear. So I, I'd love to get into the master and commander, the, the subtitle of, of your book, um, you so I, I want to get into these personalities that you do such a great job of highlighting and bringing to life those people who served under Churchill. Uh, so I have many questions about these personalities. The first is, um, <laughs> I mean, the best way I can ask it is, how did Churchill, and from your personal opinion and professional opinion, why did Churchill never fire Sir Alan Brooke? I mean, they had such a fiery relationship. Um, but they, he served under him for the entire entirety of the war, and Al, and Alan Brooke even called him Superman, as you know, as you know, in the end of your book. How did Churchill never fire him if they didn't get along so well? Um, I mean, yes, you're right. Brooke himself was amazed that he never got sacked. Uh, you know, it's a well fact, known fact that Churchill played musical chairs with his generals an awful lot, particularly in North Africa, famously, uh, which of course ultimately worked in our favour with Montgomery. But I think. I think Brooke, um, although he found it hard work, on the whole he stood up to Churchill. And I think, you know, well, I don't think I know, you know, because Churchill told him that Churchill valued that. You know, at the end of the war, when they were just before the Rhine crossing, um, Churchill and Brooke went for a walk. And, you know, Churchill actually thanked, belatedly, it has to be pointed out, he thanked Brooke for, you know, all his hard work and the fact that he had stood up to him. And, and Brooke, by his own admission, you know, said... Churchill's ideas ranged from the absolute brilliant to the crazy uh, and one of his jobs of course was to sort of head off the crazy the, the balmy ideas uh, he was successful with that sometimes and other times not um, but of course that was down to the strength of and the forcefulness of Churchill's character so I think I think in answer to your question I think they had a mutual respect I'm not entirely convinced that they liked each other but I but I but I think they respected what they achieved respectively in their own jobs. Um, whereas, in contrast, someone like Montgomery clearly viewed himself as a close friend of Churchill's by the end of the war. And yet, you know, again, they rubbed each other up the wrong way on numerous occasions. But again, I think one of the reasons Churchill liked Monty was because Monty stood up to him. You know, it's that famous incident in North Africa prior to the Battle of Alamein, where Montgomery basically said, you know, stop pestering me to take action. I know what I'm doing. You know, this is my career. This is my job. You, you're not a battlefield commander. You either allow me to do what I'm doing, 
or you replace me. I mean, effectively called Churchill's bluff. And of course, Churchill left him in place and the rest is history. So again, I think he respected that. Because um, I, I think that's, that's one of the remarkable things about Churchill's war cabinet and his generals. On the whole, they were not yes men. And I think that's probably why a lot of them found it quite difficult working with them because obviously they were successful in their own fields. You know, if you're the head of the Navy or the Air Force or the Army, you know, you're a career serviceman and, and, and you've got that got there through dint of hard work and, you know, expertise and experience. So I think, you know, there was a butting of heads almost certainly amongst the Chiefs of Staff and, and, and Churchill. But um, I think on the whole, they, you know, there was mutual respect there. Anthony, do you think that if Montgomery, Brooke, Alexander weren't so um, steadfast in their ability to uh, resist Churchill's desire to to command, uh, you know, almost in, in entirety, do you think that would have consequential and real effects on the outcome of the war? I think in a lot of cases, disaster. You know, uh, one of the problems Churchill had was he was relentlessly impatient for action to be taken, regardless of the costs. Uh, and Brooke and, you know, Admiral Pound and uh, Air Vice Marshal Portal, you know, they all, on occasions, they all had to sort of rein him in the best they could because he'd come up with these ideas, but maybe not entirely think it through. Um, and on occasions when he was let have his own way, it quite often came off the rails. So, you know, North Africa is an example of that, uh, certainly in 41 and the early part of the war, when he just kept on pushing the pace of military operations in North Africa. He kept on insisting his generals counterattacked when they weren't really ready. And I think part of the problem was that at that stage they weren't confident enough to stand up to him. So they, they suffered a series of defeats at the hands of Rommel that maybe could have been avoided if actually they'd taken more time to prepare. Um, you know... Another example of that is Greece. Of course, um, Churchill felt honour bound to help Greece out, um, you know. But I, but when I researched that, I felt actually Anthony Eden probably carries as much responsibility for the decision to send, you know, a British expeditionary force into the Balkans, you know, as it proved futilely. Um, but again, that was a sense of you know Churchill felt something needed to be done there and then. Uh, so yes, I think. The easy answer to your question, I think if you've been given full reign all the time, it, it, it could have been a lot worse. But certainly in the early part of the war, you know, the key decisions he took, you know, things like Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain. Britain needed a firm leader to say, this is what we're going to do. I mean, that was that crucial point when, you know, the appeasers had their way through the late 1930s, uh, particularly once Hitler attacked France. There was that sort of sense of, you know, we're going to see this through. Uh, or do we try and get ourselves out of this mess maybe by treating with Hitler? Uh, and I always think deep down Churchill had no intention of pursuing, you know, um, peace with Hitler. Uh, he, he, you know, there are two number of schools of thought on this, but I, I think he initially, once he was appointed prime minister, went through the motion simply to keep the appeasers happy because obviously they were in the cabinet and he needed their support. But I, I think deep down Churchill was resolute in his determination to resist. Uh, and, of course, that was the sort of decision we needed. You know, at that critical point in May 1940, dithering was not going to help, was not going to help Britain. Um, and long-term, it wasn't going to help France. I mean, for, for Churchill, it must have been an inordinately difficult decision to essentially abandon the French, which is what he did, you know. Uh, it got to that point where he had to say, well, 
uh, are we going to go down with the French and we'll leave the British Expeditionary Force trapped at Dunkirk or are we going to do absolutely everything that we can to retrieve them uh, and he obviously took that decision we're going to go um, you know and again the rest is history but but that could have gone so completely different you know with a less steadfast Prime Minister than they may have tried to save the BEF by seeking possibly a separate uh, peace with Germany um, or they may have lost their nerve and left the British Expeditionary Force there um, you know the poor French army just simply did not have the wherewithal to cut its way through to that pocket so ultimately you know Churchill's decision proved the right one. Anthony as a military historian and you touch on this in your book can you tell our listeners the significance of Churchill appointing himself as Minister of Defense in in May 1940 when he joins as Prime Minister in in contrast that to the previous great war where he and and many people rightfully uh you know complain that running a war by committee it was not as effective so so tell us about that decision and and you know what impact it had well i mean that that's pretty much the you know the, the nub of the book if you like and obviously that's what's informed formed the title um and i mean i was aware that he'd appointed himself defense minister when he became prime minister but i don't think uh until i started writing this book i truly appreciated the importance of that um, and I say that that's what kind of informed the idea of master and commander. So he was the he became the country's um, you know political master, but also its military commander. And you know as we discussed earlier, Churchill knew that you need decisive decisive leadership when it comes to waging a war. He'd seen firsthand with Gallipoli what a complete mess that was, and you know unfairly he got the blame for it. Uh, but it was very firmly a campaign run by committee. <clears throat> you know the army and the navy just simply couldn't agree on the best approach. And as a result, the whole thing ended up as a shambles with either side blaming the other. Um, and then same with South Africa. You know, Britain was slow to adapt to a new form of warfare there, particularly once the Boers went over to guerrilla warfare. Um, so he knew that the chiefs of staff needed, you know, very, very firm leadership. We were going to lose sight of what your war aims are. I think crucially for Churchill, particularly in his early days, I think he he learned, <clears throat> you know, uh, winning battles does not simply win the war. You know, uh, a battle in itself uh, is part of a bigger picture, and that you know, your actually your focus, your strategic focus, is winning the war. It's not about winning battles, which kind of goes back to our you know our earlier discussion about his commanders. For a military commander, your focus is always that military operation in front of you. You know, your job is to achieve your goals and objectives. Uh, and therefore, in the nicest possible way, you've got quite a narrow focus. You know, uh, what you're not doing is looking at the bigger picture, saying, uh, if this comes off, what's the outcome? If we fail, what's the outcome? You know, you're just simply focused on getting the job done there and then. And I think because of his upbringing and his writings and all the various jobs he had, Churchill had a pretty good strategic outlook of the world. And I think that informed him as a war leader when it came to 1940 so he understood that he and I and also I think deep down he you know he was a warlord he, he you know that that soldiering was woven into his DNA because of his ancestry that he wanted to be a leader so he knew by making himself defense minister uh, that would effectively sidestep the secretary of state for war because the chiefs of staff would answer direct to him which meant 
that immediately gave him direct control of the war without having a Secretary of State answering to him. So it sort of took out, if you will, a level of management. Um, and I think that's quite clever. And also I think it's quite crucial, um, you know, as we've just touched upon, whether or not you think he made a good job of steering Britain's strategic direction during the war is another matter. You know, I, I, I did a quick sort of checks and balances list on what were his successes and what were his failures. And to be fair, they come out pretty much balanced. But again, as we've just touched on, what we needed was decisive leadership and it was his job to take you know, tough decisions, whether they turned out to be right or wrong. So with Churchill having achieved his self-professed desire of being the master and commander uh, upon taking the prime ministership in 19, May 1940. Let's, let's look at the flip side of that. What's, what's the end game? And that's the general election of 1945 where he's viewed as the war leader and the, the country, the electorate are not interested in, in putting his party back into power and what I found interesting, what I learned from your book, were the amount of soldiers who who voted against the Tories. And, and you had this incredible story of the soldiers in Potsdam turning their backs on him. So my question for you is, I mean, was that almost inevitable? Was if, if Churchill takes the full responsibility of master and commander in this time of unprecedented crisis, is it almost inevitable that a country is looking to move on once the war is done? Yes, I mean, I think that's, that is a really good point because Churchill wove himself so firmly into the narrative of the Second World War and being Britain's war leader. Yes, I think you're right that it, 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 it was impossible for him to distance himself from the Second World War. Um, he'd achieved what he wanted, you know, he'd seen the nation through bad times, uh, through to victory in, in uh, 1945. But I think you're right that the country saw him so firmly as a warlord. I don't think that they felt um, that he would necessarily be a good peacetime leader. The other thing to remember, of course, is that those those elections in May 19, uh, sorry, was it July 45. Uh, they were party political ones, so it's not like you, you have presidential elections, you know. They weren't voting for Churchill, they were voting for political parties. So it's basically, you know, do you want a liberal government, do you want a Labour government, or do you want a Conservative government? And, you know, a lot of people had seen the mess the Conservatives had made during the late 1930s. Uh, obviously they'd made a pretty good job of, you know, coalition government during the war. But I think... You know, the Labour Party clearly had much more appealing policies uh, when it came to that election of what they were offering. And I think, rightly, you know, as you, as you pick up, British soldiers coming back from the war, they wanted a new start. You know, I think there was a sense that the end of the Second World War was a new era. You know, the world had changed. Um, people's outlook on the world had changed. So there was a completely different change. And I, and I think people wanted a new start. And, of course... As we know, that new start did not include Churchill and the Tories. I mean, to be fair, you know, Clement Attlee is a fairly grey character during the Second World War. You know, he was Deputy Prime Minister, but you'd be hard-pressed to, to name anything that he achieved. Um, and yet, you know, he ended up Prime Minister um, in Churchill's place because I think they just felt... And again, it goes back to our point. I think Attlee was not so wo so tightly woven into Britain's wartime leadership that... that, that 
that's all people saw of him. Whereas I think, you know, Churchill had, had you know, he made all these radio speeches. He toured the country up and down. You know, as you know, his international travel for diplomacy was phenomenal. You know, the amount of trips that he did to, you know, America and Canada and the Soviet Union and North Africa and everywhere else. I mean, completely punishing schedule. So, but all that, of course, kept him on the international platform all the time. I mean, Natalie was quite often there anyway, but, but it was always Churchill probably quite deliberately hogging the limelight, you know, because, you know, he, he, let's face it, you know, it's, he loved the attention, didn't he? I mean, he, he, he always was an attention seeker. I mean, again, because that goes back to his earliest, uh, his earliest experiences, um, you know, with him combining being a soldier and a, and a war correspondent, you know, these days, the thought of that, it just wouldn't happen now, is it? There's a clash of interest. You'd have operational security concerns. I mean, you remember the US Armed Forces reporting to the papers that there'd be outcries. Same with the British Armed Forces. You know, if you had someone back briefing into the media, there'd be... Whereas, you know, for a while, Churchill saw no no problem with that. But, but actually, when it got him in trouble, he quite liked the notoriety. You know, it brought him to uh, to public notifications. As I said, you know, he... He he wanted fame, and as I say in the book, you know, uh, whenever it was uh, eighteen ninety nine or nineteen hundred, you know, when he was captured, and even schoolgirls in Pretoria knew who he was. Say so he'd reached a level of fame which clearly he liked and he revelled in. You know, there's that. You know, when it, when he escaped and he went back to Durban, he held a, a rally and a speech in the town square. I mean, so he he was, you know, he. These days we call him a spin doctor, wouldn't we? That, that's essentially what he is. He, he spun his own narrative and he spun his own career, you know, in the nicest possible way. I, I, don't, I don't think there was anything cynical in what he was doing, but, but you know, he, he, he was a media man before the age of media, if that makes sense. You know, I mean, obviously we had newsreel and newspapers and radio, but the, the, the sort of level of media coverage was nothing uh, like it is now. You know, it's all consuming 24-hour and, and Churchill, he knew how to play the media game uh, to his benefit. Um, and I think he learned that very on. You know, again, as we all know, he constantly short of money, which partly drove his writings. It wasn't just self-seeking that, that he needed to earn a living. And, and he, he sort of multi-rolled, you know, the soldiering as a journalist and an author. Uh, and, and until such time as he got in trouble for that, he did that quite happily with his various campaign books and, you know, writing for the Morning Post and on, on all those other papers. Um, so I think... Yes, going back to your original point, I think the problem is he'd cleverly, in the eyes of the international media and indeed the British media, had woven himself so closely to being Britain's wartime leader and, as you as you rightly highlight, a warlord, because he was, you know, um, it, OK, we're a democracy, but, but, you know, he was probably akin to Stalin in terms of, obviously, the word checks and balances all the time on what Churchill did, but, but, but Churchill saw himself and wanted to be, I think, you know, that... It, it, I think I think probably that role was was ultimately his heart's desire because I think if he hadn't gone into pol- politics, there was a very good chance he probably would have ended up as a famous general. Um, but as we all know, of course, he wasn't prepared to put the time in. You know, he wanted to follow his father into politics, and he he wasn't prepared to undergo a lengthy a lengthy military career and get himself to the rank of say general, which would have given him a political pa- platform. Um, you know, as we all know, his his early years, his main goal, in fact, was to win a Victoria Cross or a Distinguished Service Order, you know, gallantry medals, because he knew that would, again, make him famous to the British public uh, and also would give him a good platform for his subsequent political career. Of course, he never won those and actually it didn't do his subsequent political career any harm. But 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 that's what clearly drove him in the in the early days, you know, when he took 
inordinate risks with his personal safety. Again, that's one of the things that struck me when I was researching the book was it's amazing he got to 90. You know, the number of times he was almost killed, the mind the mind boggles. Um, you know, he, again, that was something I, you know, I, I realised even up until almost the end of the Second World War, he was taking unreasonable risks with his personal safety, much to the despair of the generals around him. Um, but I think deep down, he, he was always that young lieutenant. You know, even when he's in his 60s, I think that young lieutenant was still locked inside him and, and you know, the call of the drums was almost overwhelming that he, he needed to be up the front. He wanted to see what was going on. He wanted to be a field commander, but of course, actually, he was a politician, so he had no business traipsing around battlefields, but didn't stop him, of course. I completely agree with that young lieutenant in him. As you know, he wanted to be on the landing craft uh, at D-Day. Yeah. You know, he, he had that in him. And so, um, Anthony, allow me to, to end our great conversation with a question that um, is timely. You discuss in the book the Bengal famine, but you discuss it from a, a practical military perspective. Um, as you know, Churchill's legacy um, has come into question by many people in regards to his response to the Bengal famine. Obviously, it's much more nuanced than um, than what is being what has been popularly character characterized. Um, and when you look at the primary sources, there's actually a strong argument for his response to the Bengal famine uh, in a in a very uh, strong way. But if I can ask you, when you were researching and writing this, you must have been aware of this controversy. And how did you approach it? And, and you know, what did you want to convey within the scope of your book regarding uh, this awful famine, this, you know, um, natural awful famine? Um, well, my my approach in the book very much was, um, you know, what was Churchill's leadership and strategic outlook for the war in the Far East? Uh, and obviously for Britain, that was anchored on operating out of India. Um, and then so in, in researching and writing about that, I was informed by three things, really. Obviously, the fighting in Burma, which was the front line for you know British and Commonwealth troops fighting the Japanese army. And them operating from from India. Uh, and of course, the things that impacted on the uh, war effort in that part of the world uh, was very much the 1942 Quit India Revolt, which I hadn't realised was quite as extensive it was. You know, when you look at the troop numbers involved in trying to keep law and order and how widespread it was. Um, and I approached that not so much from the sort of, uh, you know, Indian political agitation for independence, although I think most people would agree that the Quit India Revolt in 42 was ill-timed it just it didn't suit you know it didn't help anybody quite frankly but what that did was of course it impacted on Britain's ability to get uh, troops and supplies and equipment up to Bengal and Assam you know uh, up where you know the British British and Allied troops were fighting uh, Imphal and Kohima to fight the Japanese that revolt really badly impacted on the ability to get supplies into those two northeastern states um, and also it ultimately impacted on the ability to get supplies, you know, to get food into that part of the world, um, which is what led me into the into the uh, Bengal famine. Um, and of course, you know, a lot's been said about Churchill refusing to send ships and what have you. But 
what people don't really consider is that Japanese submarines, and indeed U-boats, I was quite surprised to discover U-boats were running amok in the Indian Ocean, and they were operating from the uh, Malayan island of Penang uh, quite successfully. So Churchill always had to consider the military impact of what would happen, you know, because the urge was to send grain from America or Australia or New Zealand um, to help out, to, to feed people. But the problem with that is you have to say, well, as in the North Atlantic, you're going to need carrier groups to protect those um, convoys, and they just weren't the carriers available. Uh, so you then go, well, do you then just simply send destroyers or frigates to escort those convoys? Uh, and if you do that, they are then vulnerable to air attack, and of course the loss of the Repulse and Prince of Wales early on in the war uh, and the Far East and the Pacific signalled very firmly that air power was the dominant factor rather than naval. Uh, obviously once American aircraft carriers got involved and Britain was able to deploy more carriers to that part of the world it became less of an issue. But in 1942 getting convoys up to, you know, up to Bengal was very, very, very difficult. Um, and, and it was a difficult decision. The other thing is, of course, that you know, Churchill gets the blame for what happened there, but you have to go, well, actually, the Japanese are culpable because they'd overrun uh, Malaya and Burma, and the vast majority of the rice uh, that was consumed by the population in northeast India came from those parts of the world. Because once they were occupied by Japanese, Japan, that uh, food supply stopped. Um, you know, and again, there's been much talk about sending uh, corn and wheat and grains and things. But the population in that part of the world didn't live off bread. They ate rice, you know, that's what they needed. And there wasn't really an alternative source. So, as you rightly point out, it's a lot more complicated than Churchill just went, there's a war on, I'm not sending it, you know. Because uh, ultimately that wasn't just his decision, as you've rightly said earlier. You know, he, he wasn't a dictator. Those decisions had to be taken on best advice. Um, you know, because that's one of the things I discovered with the uh, British Indian Ocean fleet. You know, it spent a lot of its time keeping out the way because it had to, uh, because it lacked air cover. You know, um, they lost a carrier. Uh, um, so trying to ward off Japanese air attack was very, very difficult. And as a result, I think it's Admiral Somerville who was out there. Um, you know, a lot of the time the fleet was at Sri Lanka, you know, the other side of the Indian Ocean, basically keeping out of the way because it, it, it did not have the right kit. And as the war progressed, they they you know they produced things like um, anti-aircraft cruisers that were you know rigged out with huge amounts of anti-aircraft guns, so they could put up a wall of steel on on attacking aircraft. But but it but you know warfare's not set; it evolves. You know, fighting wars is about problem solving all the time. You know, and that's what one of the things that Churchill had to do, and his generals and Roosevelt and and Marshall and the other American generals all the time they were problem solving because as soon as you found a solution to something the enemy would find a way around it so it's kind of almost like a constant game of chess so um, the war in the far east was very much like that and also of course it, it was the poorer cousin so you know the american priority was to clear the pacific so that got priority on on aircraft and landing craft and likewise the mediterranean with the mediterranean first strategy that got priority again with with landing craft and aircraft carriers so something had to give so ultimately of course it was uh, the Southeast Asia uh, campaign in, with Burma, because once Mount Batten arrived, he had all these grand plans of doing these amphibious assaults, you know, down the coast of Burma and and cutting off the Japanese, which as as we saw in something like the Korean War with Incheon Landis, that can work decisively. You know, it it can work. You know, even with D-Day, I mean, D-Day was decisive, so it can work decisively. But poor old Mount Batten ended the war with never uh, pretty much conducting it, because by the time he landed troops in Malaya. 
um, the Japanese had surrendered and and it, and thankfully the Japanese weren't still resisting because the whole landings ended in a complete embarrassing shambles. You know they were a complete mess. When the, when, when he conducted his version of of, of D Day, I say luckily it was conducted under pretty much peacetime conditions. But so yes, you're right. The the war in the Far East was a lot lot more complicated than, than I think people realise. You know it it. it it, it wasn't a callous decision not to help. There were lots of other factors involved. Anthony, I appreciate your time. I recommend all of our listeners to purchase this book. You can find it at Amazon, other booksellers. Um, it releases in the United States, like I said earlier, uh, on November 23rd, which is tomorrow as we're recording. So, Anthony, thank you for your time and thank you for adding this book to the Churchill Canon. Thank you, Justin. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure.